Together as we rise and hear the Lord's truth this morning from John chapter 14, our ongoing series of studies here in the morning through John's gospel continues today as we uh, keep on hearing the Lord's word to his disciples in the upper room and uh, we will look at the first 14 verses of John chapter 14 together. So let me uh, read that for us and then pray for our time and then we'll begin together. So now listen as the Lord does speak to you uh, through his gospel this morning. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves." Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Lord, we are thankful that your faithfulness endures to all generations. And so we seek you today with our whole heart, and knowing that our comfort in our trouble is that your promise gives us life. And let the unfolding of your word today do give us light that we might see Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A church leader friend of mine was recently telling me that he had a conversation with a counselor friend of his. And my friend told his friend, really asking him a question, what are the common reasons, most common reasons, for which people come to see you? And this counselor responded, oh, that's easy. Worry, anxiety, and everything that goes with it is what I most ordinarily see people for. And you don't have to be, do you, an expert observer of our Western culture uh, to know that worry and anxiety are common troubles uh, for our time. 
one recent study said anxiety disorders far outweigh every other disorder that's ever diagnosed in our nation. From 2013 to 2018, anxiety disorders were diagnosed at double the rate. A post-pandemic, you would probably understand how such diagnoses have raced off the charts to such a degree that last year, one expert at a university in California said, we are noticing trends in anxiety and depression that should cause all of us to be worried. (laughs) So you walk out of your home tomorrow, you enter, don't you, a world of worry. You go to your workplace, walk into your school, you come to a place with people living in an an age of anxiety. And of course, you might understand how even the godliest of Christians aren't exempt from such troubles. Even the holiest of God's people struggle with worry and anxiety. I think what you need to understand is that Christian maturity is not found in the absence of such troubles. It's actually found more in your activity with such troubles. What do you do with the anxiety and the worry? So in an age of anxiety, a world of worry, what what does Jesus have to say to such people? That's what our text here today is for, because you might have noticed the command that kickstarts the entire passage is, let not your hearts be troubled. Everything that follows, and there's a, a bookend, reciprocal command that comes later on in the back part of chapter 14, everything that follows today descends from that simple command, let not your hearts be troubled. So students, you want to think about why is it that the disciples there seated at the table before Jesus are so troubled? You actually want to remember that Jesus himself, seated there at the table, was full of of trouble. If you glance back to chapter 13, verse 21, you'll see John report that Jesus was greatly troubled in his spirit. And what we said in that previous study was that Jesus' soul was, was churned up in trouble like water in the wake of a speedboat. And it was troubled in particular because he's facing his death, and he knows a betrayer is there seated at the table in front of him. And he began to talk with his disciples about this, and soon Judas left to do his dastardly deed, and it was as though the entire atmosphere of the room lightened with Judas's departure. Jesus began to speak about this new commandment that he was giving his disciples, that they love one another after his own pattern, and he said it was soon going to be true that he would depart from them. Peter begins to kind of speak in his blustering, boastful fashion. And the disciples' troubles only increased because what they had heard in the span of just a few minutes, they had heard about Judas's deceit, they had heard about Peter's denial, he who is the rock, and of course they had heard about Jesus' departure. And all of this seemed to come together to weigh down their hearts with, with trouble, distress, and, and sadness. And so he says, let not your hearts be troubled. So the simple theme that we want to study in our 14 verses this morning is comfort for troubled hearts. We want to know not only that Jesus can give comfort to troubled hearts, but how Jesus gives comfort to troubled hearts. 
There are really three parts to the text. It's almost like this three-part remedy for anxiety. And so we'll walk through each one of these parts before we see something more of Jesus at the end. And the text begins by giving us comfort about the way to God. Comfort about the way to God. Because you'll see how a second summons follows that command that kickstarts the passage. Verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, if you just pause right there, uh, what you would understand is that Jesus is saying that the simple solution to trouble in the heart is me. Right? He says, don't be troubled. Just believe in me. Jesus says, Jesus is the answer to all of our troubles. But there's some interesting translation issues that go on with those commands at the end of verse 1. Because you can take them legitimately translate them as indicatives. You, you believe in me, and you also believe in God the Father. Or they could be, like the ESV translate here, as double imperatives. Believe in God, and believe also in me. Or, you could translate it the way I think is best in context, is the first is an indicative, and the second is an imperative. What does that mean, children? Jesus is probably saying something like here, you believe in God the Father. And the word order is important in the original And in me also believe. You believe in God the Father already. And in me also believe. Because it's only in Christ that comfort can ever come to troubled hearts. And he knows that he needs to elaborate further and expand further on why they need to believe in him. Namely for eternal glory, eternal grace. So he continues, notice verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So you need to understand something about that ancient context and when Jesus was living largely as it related to family architecture to get a sense of what he's talking about here with these many rooms. Other translations you might know would render it as, in my father's house there are many mansions. The word just means dwelling place. In my my father's house there are many dwelling places. So the ancient world in which Jesus lived, it was much more connected in a familiar sense than than ours is certainly in America in our time and space. And so say, for example, uh, that you had just gotten married, you were a son, and you, you took a wife. Well, what you would normally do is you wouldn't go build a house somewhere out there in the community or out there in the city. What you would do is you would build your own family's quarters directly attached to your parents' family's quarters. And as the generations continued on, what you would soon get is this family complex around which they were centered this or they were centered around this kind of family courtyard that united all of them. And so that's kind of what Jesus has in mind here is that there's one family's house but within that house there are all these dwelling places for each person and he's saying that's what it's going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth. And so uh, children maybe one way you can think about it this morning is I'm sure a number of you We'll travel in the coming days and weeks for the holiday, perhaps to an extended family member's house, perhaps to your aunt and uncle's house, perhaps to your grandparents' house. And when you arrive at their house, I would imagine that they've prepared a room for you, a place of rest, a place of of safety. And they've prepared it for you because you belong there. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples, and of course to us through the very gospel as well, is when the new heavens and new earth come, we'll find that he has prepared a place for us, those that belong to him. 
Because we belong to him, we belong there. But elevate it and amplify it further. It's as though you come into the heavenly dwelling place and you receive your room key. And you take it and go to the door. And you open the door. And you realize what he's prepared for you is genuinely a mansion dwelling place that far exceeds all imagination and comprehension, such as his grace and glory for his own. And so what Jesus says, this is what I'm going to do, this separation that you're getting ready to experience. It's, it's namely for preparation that you can be where I am. And so he says he's going to come back for him. And you'll notice in verse 4, he says, you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas says, hold on a second, Jesus. We, we don't know where you are going. Well, it may be simple, and it's spelling out to you this morning in the text, but perhaps you can find some sympathy with, with Thomas there that Jesus Christ has laid out before him very simple, sane reasons that they ought to have comfort in the midst of their trouble. And what Thomas is saying is, no, that actually is not comforting us at all, Jesus. That's only increasing the trouble and the torment. We have no idea where you're going. Why don't you just tell us where you're going? Maybe sometimes you, you read the Bible for comfort, and that's a good thing. And you come across truth that you know should be comforting to you. But somehow in your own ignorance and unbelief, it just only seems to increase the trouble. To stir up the anxiety ever further. And that very question that Thomas asks in verse 5, it is the occasion, it is the foundation, it's the reason for one of the greatest self-revelations that Jesus gives in all the Gospels, these famous words, notice verse 6. Thomas says, how can we know the way? Jesus answers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So you want to notice a couple of things about these majestic words in verse 6. Uh, you'll notice that it's an expansive claim. I am the way. Without me, there is no going. I am the truth. Without me, there is no knowing. I am the life. Without me, there is no living. So why is it then that so many people in our world today wander around like lost sheep? They don't know Jesus Christ, who is the way to God. Why is it that so many people live in the world ignorant of the gospel as it's found in Jesus Christ? Well, they don't know Jesus who is the truth of God. Why is it true that so many people lie and live dead in their sins? Because they know not Jesus who is the life of God. It's not just an expansive claim. It's also an exclusive claim because how does verse 6 end? No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only way to the Father's heavenly home. I am the only way to enjoy that place prepared for sinners redeemed by my mercy and grace. So when you think about that exclusive claim, students, here's perhaps a way you can do it. I was just remarking to a friend recently how it seems increasingly common as I drive down the highway throughout the week and you know, kind of glance out of the side windows, and I notice it seems like virtually everyone is driving down the highway with their phone positioned on their dashboard, set up to a GPS app to tell them where they're going. You might be one of those people, and that's totally fine. And if you're one of those people, you would know that when you put in the destination of where you're going, what, what tends to happen if your app is anything like mine? Well, it'll give you multiple routes how to get there. Here's the route with tolls. 
Here's the route without tolls. Here's the route that's got the fewest miles. Here's the route that's the fastest. Here's the route that's the straightest. Here's the route that takes you through the back way with more scenery and perhaps less traffic. There are many ways that you can get to the destination is what the app says. Well, Jesus is telling us here, isn't it? There is one way to get to the destination that is grace and glory in the Father's house. There is one way to get there, and I am that way. And of course, to the disciples there, there was meant to be great comfort. There is one way to get there, and I am right here. I am that way. But understand that even through the Word and Spirit this morning, it's meant to be that gloriously simple to you. Comfort about the way to God is He is the way, the truth, and the life. But he doesn't leave his disciples only there. There's another part of his remedy for such trouble, worry, and anxiety, which is comfort from the works of God. Because you see what he says in verse 7, you know me, you know the Father, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And again, Philip simply says, displaying some of the ignorance in the disciples in that moment, he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Uh, Philip seems to think that his request is it's humble. We're not asking for much. Just show us the Father. He probably thinks his request is rather biblical too. He might have in the back of his mind that story in Exodus where Moses comes to Yahweh and says, show me your glory. Uh, we know from other places in the New Testament that Jews at this time were always looking for signs and wonders. And Philip is saying, we don't need much, Jesus. Just, just show us the Father. And you might not be like Thomas in this passage, but you could be more like Philip in this passage. Lord, I'm not asking for much. Just do that wondrous miracle that will convince me that I can have comfort in my trouble. Just do that majestic, incomprehensible manifestation of your power. Then I will know that I ought not to be troubled. But in Jesus' words that follow, I think we're meant to hear them with the tone of both gentle rebuke and sadness. Because listen to what he says, verse 9. Have you been, have I been with you so long? You still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? How true it is that so many genuine disciples of Jesus can be with him for a long time and still miss some of the most basic glories that belong to being with Jesus? And he continues to say, notice verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, that the words I say to you, I don't speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So what is Jesus saying there, students? But when you see me, you see the Father. When you hear me, you hear the Father. And it's not as though when you see me that the Father in heaven is there up above treating me like some sort of spiritual puppet. Nor is it that when you hear me that the Father in heaven is up there treating me like some sort of spiritual ventriloquist. Well, what is he saying? But in the glorious unity of the Godhead, that when Jesus acts, the Father acts, and the Spirit too. And when Jesus speaks, the Father is speaking as the Spirit works too. 
And it's those works that he's calling them to remember, to reflect on, these manifestations of his messianic identity that we had talked about in so many parts of the book of signs that belongs to John's gospel. But in a way that's altogether, it's genuinely amazing to me. In verse 11, his love for the disciples is such that he goes on in verse 11 to say something he's actually already told the Jews and the Jewish leaders many times. You see what he says? Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, guys, believe on the account of the works themselves. Like if it's too hard for you to believe that the Father is in me, that I speak in the Father, well, believe what's actually been done in front of you. These these works that were windows into who I am. And of course, therefore, who the Father is. I wonder if you spend time throughout your ordinary week, because it would be a wondrous thing to do, Meditating on God's great works of redemption and revelation throughout history. Not just in scripture, but no doubt even in your own life. And what he's going to go on to say, the comfort from the works is not just that. You should have comfort from the works that have been done in front of you. But he was going to go on to say, in the future, you should have comfort from the works that will be done through you. Is what he says to the disciples. Look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. So if you kind of trace out his logic there, because I am going to the Father, you are soon going to do great works. And significantly, he says, you're going to do greater works than I did. And Christians and churches throughout the ages have often tripped over in misunderstanding and misapplying this phrase of greater works. Because all Jesus is saying, especially if you understand in context there, he's soon to talk about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon his apostles. You turn the page, as it were, in the scriptures to the Acts of the Apostles. And what do you find the apostles quickly doing in the Spirit's power? Greater works than Jesus. He never had thousands and thousands of people converted in a single day because of his ministry. Because what's the Spirit poured out to do? The text is going to show that the Spirit is poured out to convict the world of sin and of righteousness. The Spirit is poured out to bring about the work of conversion. And so what he's saying there is that there's this time coming, friends, when the Spirit's going to fall upon you and you're going to do greater works in your preaching of the gospel than even I did. So it's why, I think, throughout church history, One of the most common genres used to encourage Christians in their walk of faith are what we often refer to as revival stories. Stories of God's amazing work in redemption, of converting people, of expanding his kingdom, of building up his church, of of assaulting hell's gates. That's why it seems like year after year these great stories of God's work in conversion are written and droves of people read them. Why? Because it stirs the heart, doesn't it? Comfort from the works of God. Well, the third part of his remedy comes in verse 13 and 14. It's not just comfort from the way to God and works of God, but comfort in the will of God. You'll see what he says, verse 13, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Earlier this week, I had a number of books arrive at the house that a number of people had said, you know, were 
some of the best books written in 2023, and because I hadn't read many of these books, I grabbed a few of them to see what all of the excitement was about, and one of them was titled A Praying Church, and early on in that book, the author rightly began to remember this story from 1806, where five students at Williams College in Massachusetts were caught suddenly and unexpectedly in a rainstorm. And these five young men, who were rather wealthy, who were concerned about the societal decay around them, because at that time, church attendance in America was at the lowest it's ever been. So five students that were somewhat representative, I suppose, of our context in a certain way. Well, they sought refuge under this haystack, and as they thought about the a plight of the nation and the moral decay there and of the colonies and in, in America that had just newly formed. They began to pray for the advance of Christ in the nation, the advance of Christ throughout the world. And, and it became a prayer moment that was so encouraging, a prayer meeting that was so comforting, that they basically continued to pray weekly when what was called the Haystack Revival Prayer Meeting. And according to some of the best missiologists and historians, it's that simple prayer meeting that generated no small number of missionaries sent to the ends of the earth to preach Jesus Christ, missionary organizations to train people to preach Jesus Christ and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And if you pay attention to church history, these kind of movements of God throughout the ages, they always seem to have a very similar starting point. People praying because God has decreed it to be this way. That prayer brings down heaven's power here on earth. And he's even decreed it to bring comfort to his people. Because here it is at the end when he gets to his remedy for our ordinary anxiety. What does he say in verse 13? But, but pray. And you see the purpose of prayer at the end of verse 13 is that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And that's writ large across Scripture. The purpose in everything that God has ever done is to reveal His glory in His Son. The glory in heaven is going to be seen in the King that we behold in the fullness of His beauty and His majesty. So when we pray for the Father's glory to be revealed in the Son, what we're praying for is that what would happen here on earth is what's being done in, in heaven. But He doesn't just give us purpose for our prayer, you see the promise he gives for our prayer in verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Don't you love the, the threefold kind of pronouns, the centrality of Christ there? If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It's a good bookend to where he began. You believe in the Father. In me also believe. You know, kids, that's all it is, the prayer of faith. It's prayer to offer in Christ's name that gets through to the Father's throne room in heaven. I was with a group of students several weeks back, and somehow in the course of the conversation, we were talking about prayer meetings in the life of churches. And so I asked this group, which was relatively large enough, I said, okay, raise your hand if your church has anything approaching a regular prayer meeting. And you probably wouldn't be surprised to find out only about a third of the class raised their hand. And because some were in, that were in that class were already pastors, I said, so when you have a prayer meeting, however regular it is, uh, what percentage of the church needs to arrive for you to be excited about how many people showed up? And they basically said something like, if we get 25% of the church, somewhere to a third of the church show up for the prayer meeting, we are tickled pink 
That is the best news ever if one out of four church members want to pray. It's surely true in our time and space and not too trite and simple to say that so much of our struggles with anxiety and worry is simply because we don't know the comfort in praying for God's will to be done. That we don't know the comfort in the church because it's hard to gather to pray somewhat regularly in the church where Jesus says, here's the purpose in prayer, that the Father will be glorified in me and to give you some stirring energy for your prayer life. Ask anything of me in my name. I will do it. That ought to be comfort for your troubled heart. So as we close, let's think of a couple things about Christ that are surely apparent in this passage. The first of which is that I want you to behold his sympathy. Behold his sympathy. You know, I was reading one of these kind of revival-like stories earlier this week about a man who was converted in his college-age years, and as the Lord began to plow up his heart in conviction of sin and the way of righteousness that's found in Jesus Christ, he, he began to speak about his, his misery. And he said, uh, my misery was namely in this, that as I was thinking through uh, the reality of Christ as Savior and the way of salvation that's only found in Him, my misery was that I was friendless. And he said, it wasn't because I didn't have any worldly friends He said, quoting from a text in Psalm chapter 142, he said, there was no one there to care for my soul in the midst of my concern. And you could go home and read that in Psalm 142 verse 4. You might feel a lot like that man of old, that you don't have anyone who cares for your soul. You might think yourself trapped in a house, children with parents that don't care for you. Students and workplaces, schools where no one cares for you. Perhaps you find yourself trapped in a marriage where where no one seems to care for you. Do you see here what Jesus has for his disciples? Care for them. Disciples who he says, even in the course of the conversation, how is it that I've been with you so long that you still don't get it? But he doesn't ditch the disciples, does he? He cares for them. He's kind to them. He's strong for them. He sympathizes with them. He's merciful and gentle to them. You need to behold his sympathy. Not just his sympathy. Also behold his sufficiency. Let's go back to what he said in that conversation there with Philip. Because what Philip says, if you notice again, he says to Jesus... In verse 8, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Show us the Father. It's sufficient for us. That's all we need, Jesus. What does Jesus say? You see me, you see the Father. You see me, you have sufficient reason to not let your hearts be troubled. As I said earlier, it's not the maturity in Christ that removes the anxiety as much as it's the maturity in Christ that shows what you do with the anxiety, realizing that you have Christ Jesus who is sufficient for all of your troubles. And you ought to know where he goes, or will Lord willing get to next week. Because if you glance through verse 15 through 31 of John chapter 14, as a chapter almost entirely 
occupied with the coming promise of the Holy Spirit, who is called the Comforter. As you might be in this room today and think, well, yes, if I was sitting physically next to or physically in front of Jesus, I would not have trouble in my heart. I would have much comfort. But you know what Jesus says? You may not have me sitting beside you physically, but I'm going to go through trouble at the cursed cross at Calvary. And it's my trouble. It's going to take away all of your troubles. And because I'm preparing a place for you, I'm going to pour out my spirit into your heart so I not, may not be beside you physically. I am inside my people spiritually. And that is comfort for troubled hearts, isn't it? He's full of sympathy. He's full of sufficiency. Christ Jesus, he genuinely is all the comfort your troubled heart needs. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask for the comfort that's a promise to us in Christ to surround us, to envelop us, to minister to us, that we would cast our burdens upon you, that our faith would find its anchor in Jesus Christ, who has taken away all trouble, that we might live in full freedom and forgiveness. Administer that grace to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.